Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little-known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection. Welcome to the Treasures of the Texas Collection, brought to you by Baylor University Libraries, KWBU-FM, and William and Kathleen Wardlaw. Famous poet W.H. Auden once said, A poet is, before anything else, a person who is passionately in love with language. This love for language is evident in all cultures, from the Greek odes to Japanese haikus. Even Texan writers have tipped their hats to this literary art form. Pather Carey is here today to share some of their work with us. Welcome, Pathra. What can you tell us about Texas poets and their works? Thank you for having me, Mary. I'm glad to be here. Let me begin by saying that the Texas Collection has a vast amount of resources on Texas poetry, and we can only begin to just scratch the surface here today. For one, I love poetry, so this was a real treat for me to research. Now, given that we're discussing Texas poetry, we have to start with cowboy poetry. There's just no way around it. Sounds good to me. Let's do that. How how did cowboy poetry find its place in the literary art form? Cowboy poetry started in the late 1800s, around campfires during cattle drives. The cowboys would sit around and tell stories at night to entertain one another. Sometimes the stories were true, and sometimes they were just tales that the cowboy had heard from someone else, or just made up on the spot. Before long, cowboys started adding rhyme and meter to their stories. Of course, this made the stories more entertaining, but it also made them easier to remember and retell later on down the trail. It wasn't long before even cowgirls picked up the skull. Here's a poem by one. Her name is Linda Kirkpatrick, and it's titled, Kathy Williams. In a tiny shotgun cabin, Martha's baby girl was born. A baby born to slavery, who no one could forewarn. But Kathy Williams was determined, and never was deterred. Beginning her life as a house girl, being seen but never heard. Then the Civil War broke out. And the Union soldiers came, and taking Cathay with them, her life would never be the same. Cathay learned the ways of military life, became an accomplished cook. She was sent to General Sheridan, a job she proudly undertook. The Civil War ended, and Cathay was finally free. And in seeking out her freedom, she found her place in history. Her own way she wanted to make, a burden to no one be, So as a Buffalo soldier, she joined up in the 38th U.S. Infantry. Cathy Williams became William Cathy, and no one was to know. The secret of her identity as a soldier, she did grow. The troops moved west to Fort Cummings to keep the Apache at bay. There were 101 enlisted men, among them William Cathy. After two years as a Buffalo soldier in the 38th Company A, Williams went to see the doctor, and her secret came out that day. Discharged as a Buffalo soldier, Cathay did her very best as she continued to make her way in this land we call the West. Because of her illegal enlistment, her pension passed her by, but she picked herself up and moved on, never questioning why. Life ended for Cathay Williams at the age of 82. 
She lived a long, independent life, a life that was tried but true. So a salute to Cathay Williams, the hero of this rhyme, a special woman of the West, and a legend in her time. Fabulous. William Cathay, or Cathay Williams, I should say, if real, was certainly a hero or heroine of her mm-hmm. time. Is this story true, Pethra, or is it just a fiction? This is actually a true story, Mary. At the time, slaves discovered by Union soldiers were considered the Army's contraband. Though the Emancipation Proclamation granted slaves their freedom, many slaves remained in the Union's hands. The government tried to assist by creating all-black infantry and cavalries for free black men to join. Many had served in regiments during the war, so these were extensions of those ranks. Cathay Williams was a house servant when Union soldiers first found her during an attack on her owner's plantation. The soldiers needed a cook, so they kept her within their own ranks. Throughout the Civil War, Cathay was transferred from battle site to battle site. Her last post was with General Phil Sheridan, for whom she cooked and did laundry. She picked up a skill or two with all of her time on the front. When she found herself jobless after the war, she decided to go with what she knew best— serving in the military. She wanted to be able to take care of herself, and this seemed like her best shot. She reversed her first and last name and enlisted on November 15, 1866, with her cousin and a friend. No one ever said anything about it. A medical exam wasn't required, so Cathay didn't have to worry about that. Standing six feet tall with a broad form, None of the other soldiers ever suspected Cathay wasn't anything different than what she claimed to be. Even after contracting smallpox and having to see the doctor, her cover still wasn't blown. It wasn't until Cathay grew tired of serving that she started feigning sickness and willfully disclosed her true gender. Of course, she was discharged on the spot, and the soldiers weren't too happy when they learned they'd been duped. Since she served illegally, she never received a pension. Fortunately, she was resourceful and found a way to support herself by opening a boarding house. She passed away in 1924 at the age of 82 in New Mexico. Well, having pulled off something like that, I'd have to agree that she was very resourceful. Yeah. Uh, Let's hear another poem. Here's another one by Kirkpatrick. It's entitled Teresita. There was an uneasy tremor in the ground. She knew something was not right. Then she heard the pounding of the horse's hooves, and slowly she stood in fright. The troops topped the ridge in the early morn. They arrived in a cloud of dust. She turned and looked for her father, the chief, a man she could trust. Her eyes sparkled like black diamonds. Her hair was like a raven's wing. And as she stood amid the chaos, she could hear the shaman sing. Their homes were torched and set ablaze. Through the clouds of smoke, she could hear the sounds of the cries of the wounded, and again she gazed in fear. Costelietos was roped and drugged by a horse. She ran to assist the old man. Where is the respect, she wanted to know. Who is leader of the Lapan? They seemed not to care, and they fired more shots, but soon not another sound. With a silence so deadly and a calm so serene, The tribe was soon gathered around. Those that could walk were made to march. The others would die alone. They crossed the river, then another moon more. T'was the last time she would see her home. 
Teresita and her father marched like the rest. At Fort Clark, they were entombed. They would live the life of captives, while life as a Lepan was doomed. She would later become the bride of a scout. She would ride with him each day. For freedom, she did this, relinquished her dream. Oh, what a price to pay. No longer to turn as free as the breeze, no longer her soul to soar, no longer to live as a dove on the wing, no longer a life as before. To her new life she adjusted, her new freedom she did behold. She loved her family and worked as a scout, but still longed for her life of old. Oh, how sad. Petra, what's the story behind this one? Yes, this one was sad, Mary. It's also ironic that this sad ending for Teresita and the tribe she belonged to was the result of President Ulysses S. Grant's peace policy, of all things. Grant met with Quakers in January of 1869 to discuss ways to best work with the Native Americans. The policy was described as a state of mind, a determination that since the old ways of dealing with the Indians had not worked, new ways, which emphasized kindness and justice, must be tried. The policy read well on paper, but it wasn't successful. The Native Americans didn't see a need to change their customs to suit the settlers. What began in peace ultimately ended in bloodshed when the 10th Cavalry took over the Fort Sill Reservation. Let's look at the work of another Texas poet. She wasn't a cowgirl, but she raised quite a ruckus. Bonnie Parker from Bonnie and Clyde. Oh my, she was a poet. Yeah, one of her English high school teachers pointed out to Parker her gift for poetry and writing. She was even an honor student in her day. Parker was born in Central Texas and grew up in Dallas. She met Clyde Barrow when she was 20, and the rest is history. One of her poems is engraved on her tombstone and reads, As the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine and the dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. Here's a poem she wrote about herself and Clyde in 1934, the same year they died. It's titled, The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. You've read the story of Jesse James, of how he lived and died. If you still are in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang. I'm sure you all have read how they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate all the law the stool pigeons, spotters, and rats. They call them as cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean. But I say this with pride, that I once knew Clyde, when he was honest and upright and clean. But the laws fooled around, kept talking him down, and locking him up in a cell, till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a few of them in hell. The road was so dimly lighted, there were no highway signs to guide. But they made up their minds. If all roads were blind, they wouldn't give up till they died. The road gets dimmer and dimmer. Sometimes you can hardly see. But it's fight man to man, and do all you can, for they know they can never be free. From heartbreak, some people have suffered. From weariness, some people have died. But take it all in all, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. If a policeman is killed in Dallas, and they have no clue to guide, 
If they can't find a fiend, they just wipe their slate clean and hang it on Bonnie and Clyde. There's two crimes committed in America, not accredited to the Barrow mob. They had no hand in the kidnap demand, nor the Kansas City Depot job. A newsboy once said to his buddy, I wish old Clyde would get jumped. In these awful hard times, we'd make a few dimes, if five or six cops would get bumped. The police haven't got the report yet, but Clyde called me up today. He said, don't start any fights. We aren't working nights. We're joining the NRA. From Irving to West Dallas Viaduct is known as the Great Divide, where the women are kin and the men are men, and they won't stool on Bonnie and Clyde. If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat, about the third night they're invited to fight by subguns rat-tat-tat. They don't think they are too tough or desperate. They know the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To a few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. That could be described as prophetic in a sense. Indeed. They did go down together, but are buried in different cemeteries. Let's keep going. Here's an interesting poem by humorist Boyce House about Texas poets, and rightly so. It's titled Texas Poets. You write about blue bonnets in a land that knew Houston, hero fit for a Greek tragedy, and about cottages nestling in honeysuckle. Though there is the spot that saw Goliad's massacre, and about white poplars marching up a hill into the sunset, when men and women face the drouth, the sand, the wind, and somehow smile. Texas, with its pirates' gold, its cattle trails, its gunfighters, its cotton fields, corn fields, wheat fields, and oil fields, its lonely canyons carved by nature, in a forgotten land, newsboys waving extras. Wrestlers throwing each other out of rings while pale, countenance clerks shriek. Clyde and Bonnie with blazing machine guns. Farmer Jim and Ma Ferguson. And seven million others doing things brave, foolish, amusing, or what have you. And yet, Texas poets, you swoon when you behold a dewdrop enfolded by a rose. I also have a short one by Violet Newton about Texas poetry. She wrote well into her 90s and published a couple books of poetry. This poem is titled, Texas Poetry. A beast? They do not think much of Texas poetry. They think Texans have no soul for aesthetics, that all they do is pound their own chests, talk loud and make money. But every time I'm nearing Austin, I look up at a painted sign high on the side of the highway that says, Bert's dirts and pyramids of many-colored soils sold by Bert, and I swell with pride and point to that terse little title and wish we could stop so I could go in and purchase a spondy of sand to make a gesture of my support for poetry in Texas. Ah, poetry with a sense of humor. Yeah. I came across that one in two resources, so I had to include it. You know, Mary, Texas' rich culture is deeply intertwined with that of Mexico's, and I discovered many interesting works by Texas Hispanics. This first one was written by Teresa Paloma Acosta. She's a historian from McGregor, Texas. 
She writes about the Spanish language and the blending of cultures in Spell My Name. It reads, My name is Cristina Lopez Gonzalez. That's Cristina without the H. And Gonzalez with an S. Here, a shrug. Yo me llamo Josefina Paulette Gomez. And there's an accent mark on the O in Gomez. But we don't use it. Here, a smile and a tilt of the head toward me. I'm Pedro, last name Rodriguez, which is way too largo for me, but I'll give it a try. Here, a concentrated frown, pencil midair. I'm Nico, well, Nicholas. That's the English way of saying it, and the Spanish way of spelling. Here, a broad grin. Question. Nico, do you like it that way? Answer. Well, yeah. My abuela insists on the Spanish version. Question. Nico, what do you like? Here, a shrug and a both. I mind my abuela. If she says it in Spanish, I say it's A-OK with me. Here, a spontaneous Nicholas. Como in Spanish. Here, the mark of Tex-Mex is on every tongue, lengua franca. Y no importa que digan los jefes who bend over the Spanish dictionaries, counting every missed syllable. In this, Acosta points out not only the mixing of cultures, but the challenge of staying true to one while embracing another. Another Texas poet puts pen to paper on this same subject. I am a Mexican who looks Jewish, by Francis M. Trevino. I am a Mexican who looks Jewish, with orange hair and hazel eyes, White skin, not brown. I am a Mexican living in the United States, third-generation Texan and first-generation, not to speak the language of my parents and grandparents. I ask my mother after growing up with mariachi music, Vicente Fernandez, and Los Tres Ponchos in my grandmother's candled house. I ask her what music was her favorite, and she replies, Motown. I realize something is lost. And in the small family streets of far Texas, my father struggles for his college degree and eventually embraces middle management and happily forgets the small streets of far and the culture that bound him. No language, no music, no poetry, no memory, no Mexicans in our house. Despite the names Maria, Carmen, Rosa, Esperanza, Margarita, Teresa, Luis, Enrique, Imelda, Irene, and Juan, my father's eleven brothers and sister. But me? I have my grandmother's name, and she has her grandmother's name, and I have the memories, and I was the one in a family of Gueras, born with a brown soul. That's put so well. Certainly that's an aspect of Texas history and culture. What else did you unearth in your research? Interestingly enough, and to my surprise, I came across a version of Mother Goose nursery rhymes rewritten in the Texas vernacular. Oh, really? What did you find? The poet is David Davis, and he certainly showed some creativity with these. Here's Texas prayer. By the campfire, bout to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Wake me early, wake me late, but let me rise in the Lone Star State. 
Ah, now I lay me down to sleep. All right. <laughs> and here's a revision of Humpty Dumpty titled Breakfast with Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the ranch cowboys and all the vaqueros got a big breakfast of huevos rancheros. I, I love it. At least a humorous and partially happy ending. Right. <laughs> Again, there's the mixing of the Mexican and Southern culture. How about this version of Jack and Jill? Jack and Jill scurried up the hill to drill a well for water. Jack fell jogging and bumped his noggin, and Jill came tumbling after. Up they got and home did trot, rewarded for their toil. They were coated head to toe in black, for the children had struck oil. Someone had to mention our black gold, right? Of course. <laughs> okay, here's one more spin. But this one is spun from the Bible and was written by Joyce Ann Gibson Roach. A Psalm for Toad, West Texas. With apologies to King David and sundry parts of King James' Bible. They shall dwell in the tents of dryness and drought but for a season. Rain will surely come. Not mercy drops, but showers of blessing. Gully washers. They worship in Brush Arbor Sanctuary. Dugout Chapel, Greasewood Grove, Under Sky Apps and Nave, Oil Derrick Steeples, Personal Vestibules, The Only Entrances. Everything that has life or breath goes armed, ready to fight for life. Plants with blades and thorns, fences barbed, animals with horn, fang, claw, and hoof. Likewise, men and women, even unto words, they go armed. Not the chosen ones, but more the choosers, play their roles in miracle, morality, muster, plain as a sunburned nose on a freckled face. They see him ride up on the prairie storm, appear in the burning bush, or burned up crops, in prairie fire, in clouds of dust, tornado or mighty winds, in dry lightning that portends no rain. The places of their gatherings are like the tents of Abraham, offering shade in a dry and thirsty land, where having enough saliva to spit is holy water, where surely the rain will come. They abide in straight and narrow rows, or dwell in the midst of barbed wire. Their doctrines are deep as chasms, pits for falling into, open as cloudless sky, burned clean by the searing sun, jealous as Joseph's brothers. They are holy writ, they are the words and the music. They are the song. And the dry land pulses the rhythm that bids them dance or sing, beat their breasts or cry. Thirsty religion does not always suffer long, is not always kind, is sometimes envious, thinks sometimes evil, is easily provoked. The sinners and saints stand upon the walls of Jerusalem, or Chillicothe, Jacksboro, Muleshoe, Hereford, Perryton, Albany, Post, Crane, Mintone. They sound the shofar or yell yippee-tee-yee-yo and square dance upon the walls. They praise God with timbrel and trumpet, banjo, guitar, and fiddle. By the rivers of Babylon, or Pecos, Rio Grande, Brazos, Nueces, and Red, they sit down and weep or laugh. Blessed are they who cry in the West Texas wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, or for roundup, or for sowing and reaping, 
or for drilling, or for canning and preserving. And those who say, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, or the plow, or a trail to market, or the diamond bit. Hear their cries, O Lord. Let the rains come again. Let them dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If the rains come, when it rains. Well, you've certainly delighted us today, Pedro, with this poetry and even brought out a little Texas history in the process. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Mary. The great state Texas flower has bonnets of blue, and the Texas collection has poetry, too. Time doesn't allow us to cover all the wonderful Texas poets in one sitting. If you would like to learn more about the Texas poets and their work, the Texas collection on Baylor campus has an enormous assortment. Join us next time for Treasures of the Texas Collection. You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, The Texas Collection at Baylor University. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by the generous support of William and Kathleen Wardlaw, the Texas Collection Guy B. Harrison Jr. Endowment Fund, and the Baylor University Libraries. Thank you.